Let's read Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And flicking forward to Acts chapter 2, that's page 910. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 40. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an, with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves see and are hearing today. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and Peter said to the rest of the apostle, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
And flick forward to Acts chapter 17, verse 22 again. That's on page 926, 926. Acts 17, verses 22 to 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Just give you a sense of our ambition as preachers in this church is to not share our own ideas, but to proclaim what God's Word says. We've been working our way through Psalm 110, and we've got to the bit that's about Judgment Day. And we read those two other sermons from Acts to show that preaching about Judgment Day is something that the apostles, Jesus' official spokesmen, didn't bottle. They didn't step away from it. It was right at the heart of what they said, whether they were preaching in Jerusalem or preaching in Athens. So let me lead us in prayer for help as we look at God's word. Our Father in heaven, we pray today as we hear your voice, you'd help us not to harden our hearts. We pray you would help us to trust in Jesus as our king and our priest and the judge of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we moved up to London, if you don't know us, my wife and, and um, I moved up to London two years ago now. And the question we've most had since we moved up is, uh, how do you find living in Edinburgh? To which the answer is, we love it. We absolutely love it. If you've come here recently to study, welcome. And it's great. It's a great city, uh, fresh air, hills everywhere. Fantastic, apart from biking, which is a bit painful. It's great. Love living in Edinburgh. And if I'm really honest, one of the things I love about it um, is... When I kind of come home from a late night meeting or a Bible study or something, I now don't have fears about my personal safety on the street, which might seem a bit extreme, but actually the bit of kind of inner city London that we lived in uh, sometimes was a bit hairy. Sometimes I would be worried about um, a a mugging or a stabbing uh, down some of those streets. 
which raises the issue I want to start with today. Uh, there's an outline on the back of the handout. My question I want to start with is, um, how important is it to you to know that you're safe? I wonder if you're someone who wants to be safe. Or if you're a parent, I wonder if you want your children to be safe or your spouse to be safe. Or those of us looking after our parents and wanting them to be safe. This is the kind of big question today. Where is safety to be found in life? To some of us, people like me with a kind of worrying, anxious disposition, a kind of worst-case scenario imagination. Well, for some of us, the desire to be safe can be very strong. It can actually control a lot of our time and our thought and our energy and our money. We can kind of put a lot into trying to make ourselves as safe as possible. And to be honest, I wonder even those of us who are pretty carefree around here, the kind of breezy optimists by temperament, I wonder if the state of the UK is starting to make you wobble a bit, maybe, just maybe, the, you know, politics, economics, simultaneously completely paralysed and wildly unpredictable. It's an amazing combination. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and it's been like that for two years. Extraordinary. Well, social change, it's exhilarating all the time, but social cohesion is unravelling increasingly. So you get more and more incompatible voices saying different ethical things with zero tolerance for discussion. But they can't all be right. I wonder if even the optimists among us feel safe. I wonder if you feel like the future of your family or your friends is safe. Well, if you are someone who longs for safety, let me say that being a Christian or becoming a Christian can actually make things worse in terms of this world. I wonder if that's a surprise. If you're, if you're just looking into Christian things here, maybe you didn't expect to hear that from the pulpit. I would love you to become a Christian, but it might make your life harder, less safe in this life. Why do I say that? Well, from the evidence of the Bible and kind of of the church across the globe and the church across history, the evidence is that becoming a Christian can be a route to extra costs and risks and dangers in life. Just think about it. Think how many countries around the world there are where becoming a Christian could lead to direct physical or social or economic persecution. That might be kind of threats and intimidation, even violence. It might just be ostracism. You're no longer kind of one of us. We've, this church has friends in multiple countries where that would be the case. But even in our culture, even in Freshers' Week, why would you risk the kind of social stigma that's attached to admitting that you believe the Bible on some of today's hot topics? Why would you give away money to the cause of the gospel when actually if I kept the wealth, whether I'd have more money to keep my family safe? Why would you live in a less safe area of a city to be more involved in outreach to that community? I mean, why would anyone move from kind of leafy Morningside to Charleston in Dundee with Andy Robertson, our friend, or to Gracemount, the church plant in Edinburgh? And as aggressive secularism gets more and more intolerant of biblical Christianity, why in time might we risk fines or public ridicule or losing buildings, losing jobs, Maybe even down the line, imprisonment, if free speech isn't protected. Why would you do that? And before you, before you think, oh, that's a million miles away, that's all a bit alarmist, um, 
In a few weeks' time, the World Rugby World Cup's going to begin, and one of the best players in the world won't be playing because he was a Christian. And on Twitter, he, he put um, a paraphrase of a passage from the Bible. And we might think, well, maybe he could have done it in a, in a better context or more gently or whatever. Maybe Twitter's the, not the best forum. But actually, he did just put an extract of the Bible out in public. And then there was a tribunal. He lost his job. He was fined, banned from the World Cup squad, and so on. Perhaps it's just not safe to be a Bible-believing Christian. Perhaps we can find a safer form of Christianity. It's an important question as you're kind of looking around churches and thinking, where will I settle? You could probably find a kind of selective form of Christianity that just picks the bits of the Bible that don't disagree with our culture at the moment, don't clash and just speak about them. You could definitely find a privatised kind of Christianity where God only cares about the weekends, the kind of private sphere, the family. You can ignore him or silence him everywhere else. You could find just positive Christianity that never says the implications, the, the negatives, a God that's less exclusive. Well, if your heart sometimes hankers over that kind of easier form of Christian life, we've been seeing through this series that the author of the Hebrews says, be warned, be careful. He keeps pointing to Psalm 110, saying, if you know this psalm, if you know what Jesus is like from this psalm, well, you wouldn't dare um, head to the greener grass, the so-called looking greener grass. So let's look at Psalm 110. and We'll eventually end up in Hebrews for application, but let's look at Psalm 110. It's on page 509. Please do open it. It helps to have it in front of you. Check what I'm saying. And let me read verse 1 and then verses 5 to 7. Verse 1, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This morning we're thinking about Jesus, the conquering judge. Let's get our bearings in the psalm. Remember, this is a psalm written over 900 years before Jesus arrives, but it's telling us where is Jesus right now? And the answers will come on the screen. We've been seeing that right now he's already enthroned as God's king. That's verse 1. That's what Acts 2 was about, that after the resurrection, Jesus is enthroned as God's king already right now. That's 1 to 3. Then verse 4, we saw last week that Jesus is this extraordinary priest, someone who can get us right with God forever, fully forgiven with an eternal priest. That's verse 4. But now, thirdly and finally, from verse 5 onwards, we're going to see what it is that Jesus is waiting for. Verse 1 has Jesus sat waiting, and verse 5 tells us what for, the day of wrath. So Jesus, he's not just a king and a priest, he's a conquering judge. Now you'll see on the outline, we've got two kind of big points to look at this morning and then some so what at the end. The second point is going to get into the detail, verses 5 to 7, and it will be deeply sobering when we do. But actually, I want to do a bit of introduction with point one, because it's easy to just switch off when you hear kind of talk of judgment. I don't really want to think about that. But I want to 
get us thinking about it. Let's start with this question. Why do we need a reminder of the Day of Judgment? Why do we need Psalm 110 to tell us about this? Well, very simply, because it hasn't happened yet. It's not yet time. You see, on the Day of Wrath, no one's going to be studying Psalm 110. We'll be experiencing it. It'll just be before our eyes and our ears. The point at the moment is we're in the period of delay. That's the significance, verse 1, of God saying to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We need this psalm as advance notice. It's a loving early warning. So this is our first point. We currently live in the time of God's gracious, patient waiting. Sometimes people say that the God of the Bible is... um, must just be angry and mean. He's just kind of waiting for an opportunity to smite people. Perhaps some felt that reading Psalm 110 towards the end. But actually, that's to miss the point entirely. Because Psalm 110 has now given 3,000 years of notice about the Day of Judgment. Of course, a holy God is indignantly opposed to evil. Just think about it a moment. If, if God was uh, indifferent, if he just didn't care when it came to rape or injustice, bloodshed, bullying, well, a God like that would be a monster who just kind of watches what's going on and just... Who cares? Just leave him to it. Of course, a holy God is indignantly opposed to evil. But the God of the Bible is slow to anger and abounding in patience. I mean, just think about it. I don't know how you find sometimes um, looking at the headlines or watching the news. Just think how many terrible headlines he's endured. Even since Jesus rose from the dead and was appointed as his king. And of course, God doesn't rely on the news to tell him what's going on. He knows it all. He knows the stuff that doesn't make the headlines. It's too hidden, too covered up. He knows what's going on in every heart. He knows what's going on behind every door. Not least, he knows how much people reject his son, Jesus, his chosen king, how they just use him as a swear word. It's such, um, it's just provocation from people that he's made day after 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 day. And yet such patience to hold off 2,000 years now since Jesus encountering. Although, of course, that delay leads people to scoff and say, well, in that case, it's never happening. It's just proof that final judgment's never going to happen, which is more provocation. In 2 Peter, the Bible puts it like this, responding to that kind of scoffing at the idea of judgment. Do not look, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. One of our neighbours actually on our street got robbed over the summer. And needless to say, they didn't see it coming. I mean, the week before, things were just carrying on as normal. 
And so the day of judgment will be. It will just hit us in an instant, says the Bible. I would say it would, it's going to hit us without warning. But actually, Psalm 110 is warning. And there's plenty else in the Bible. You see, we're living in this time of waiting, this time of patience. God wants people to turn to Jesus and find forgiveness. Even scoffers at the idea that Jesus is coming back. He wants them to find forgiveness. And that's why we listened in in Acts 2. You don't need to turn there. But that's why we listened in to Peter preaching to this crowd in Jerusalem who actually were in serious trouble. And through, through the sermon in Acts 2, he's pointing out to these people who were involved in Jesus' death. They, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. He's telling them what terrible trouble they're in. But wonderfully, he doesn't just leave them with no hope. I'll put uh, an extract up on the screen. Um, if you click on, Catherine. Thank you. This is um, Peter speaking to them in Acts 2. This Jesus God raised up, of that we're all witnesses. Um, he's now exalted at the right hand of God. And then verses 34, 35, he quotes from Psalm 110. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In that first Christian sermon, Peter's showing people that the crowd he's speaking to are on the wrong side of Jesus, the wrong side of Psalm 110, which means they're in terrible, terrible trouble. No wonder the response is that they were cut to the hearts. See, there's only one person who will have a final say on every man, woman, and child in this world, and it's Jesus. It's just possible to be so, so wrong about Jesus Christ. And so they asked Peter and the apostles, what should we do? Now, if you look down at Psalm 110 again, just looking at verse 1 and verses 5 to 7, what would be the answer to that? So these people, they're on the wrong side of God's chosen king. From, if you only had verse 1 and verses 5 to 7, what would be the answer to what shall we do? I think the answer would be, there's nothing you can do. You've just got to brace yourself for impact. You've killed the son. You tried to silence him. But he's back. He's coming back. He's alive reigning and so brace yourself if we didn't have verse 4 in this psalm that's all it would be but wonderfully this is a good news psalm we saw this last week it's a good news psalm jesus is not just a conquering judge he's a priest he provides a way for us to be forgiven to be right with god and so brilliantly peter doesn't end his sermon with a warning he ends his sermon with an invitation it will come up on the screen he offers full salvation to everyone who calls on the name of Jesus for forgiveness of their sins. That is, he offers Jesus as priest. So can you see the point I'm saying about where we're living in terms of time frame? If you look at Psalm 110, we're living after verse 4 and before verse 5. We're in the time where Jesus is offering himself as a priest. 
a place of safety, a safe place to be when judgment comes. Rock of ages, as one hymn puts it, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. So Jesus is a place of safety. That's point one. And so far, most of that is just recap of of what we've been seeing the last couple of weeks. But there's a reason I've spent so long talking about that, and it's this. This is important. Listen, just because point one is our current experience, so we're currently living in the time of God's patient waiting, well, don't therefore think that point two isn't real. Let me try and say that again. Just because there's a delay in the day of judgment, don't have any doubt that it's real. I know speaking about a day of judgment and kind of the concept of hell, it it is laughable to many in our culture. People do scoff at the idea. I think they might scoff because that's easier than actually engaging with it. It's actually too terrifying, I think, for some to seriously talk about whether it's real. And maybe this sermon this morning might seem like it's kind of just alarmist scare tactics, trying to scare people into becoming Christians, maybe just religious manipulation. But of course, it's not wrong to scare people if there is a bomb in the building. Not all alarms are wrong. The question is, is it a fake alarm, a false alarm? Or a real one. And so let's just take a moment to think are there any reasons to take this warning in Psalm 110 seriously? Anything that might suggest this isn't a false alarm? Let's just have a, a think about what's already been proven true from this psalm. Um, when David first wrote this, they'd, they'd, never, they'd never seen a king like the king of verse 1. They'd never seen a priest like the priest in verse 4, and they'd never had a judge or seen judgment quite like verse 5. There are kind of three huge job appointments in this psalm, and when it was written, there was no real evidence that those things had, were, were going to happen. I mean, they were just massive promises, hard to believe. But here's the thing. Nearly a thousand years after this was written, Jesus of Nazareth did come. He did rise from the dead. He was exalted at God's right hand. That's what Acts 2, that sermon at Pentecost, is all about. He's saying, look, verse 1 of Psalm 110, tick. It's actually happened. And then in verses 2 to 3, there's this idea of this king's rule spreading outwards from Zion, from Jerusalem. A contested kingship, his enemies aren't removed or defeated, but it is expanding, and that's been the story ever since Peter's sermon, all the way through Acts, all the way through church history. The fact we're sitting here in Scotland praising King Jesus is evidence of verses 2 and 3. And what about verse 4? Well, verse 4 of Psalm 110 was in some ways the hardest promise to believe. A completely different kind of priest, an eternal priest. I mean, how do you manage that? How is it possible to have a human priest forever? But then Jesus Christ in space-time history offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross, rose from the dead, sat at God's right hand as our eternal priest. It's already happened. It's already happened. All those things actually on the screen have already happened. Except 
verses 5 to 7, except this cataclysmic judgment, except the fact that Jesus has not yet returned in judgment. So what I'm saying is this, verses 5 to 7, is another fixed fact of the universe. This is our second point. Don't be deceived. The day of wrath will surely come. It is going to come. Remember that verse 1 again. God the Father says to God the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That picture of a footstool, it's not actually from the world we might think of. We might be thinking soft furnishings, you know, kind of Ikea, DFS. It's not that at all. It's a picture from the ancient world of uh, how a, a king who's victorious over another king would put their foot on the neck of the king. It's an image of victory, conquest. And this isn't going to be a close fight, a kind of difficult struggle. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. It's just like the picture of the king in Psalm 2, if you know that. It's the picture of all the nations, like little pottery vessels, and just being shattered to pieces by the strength of this king. Kings will be shattered on the day of Jesus' wrath. Important to recognize about verse 5 and 6, it's not just pure power. I think we're very uh, rightly nervous of power because we've seen so much corrupt use of power. People just serving themselves, bending the rules for their own um, ends. But this is verse 6, real justice, righteous judgments. He will execute judgments among the nations. The Psalms actually are really um, clear on this. So, so Psalm 9, for example, um, puts it like this. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He's established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. All those cries around the world from victims, the cries of, how long, O Lord? The cries of, why don't you do something? If you're there, if you're just, if you care, why don't you do something? Well, the good news of Psalm 110 is he is going to do something. And he's chosen the man he'll do it through. So Acts 17, Acts 17, if we click one more on, Acts 17 puts it like this, the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Jesus' resurrection shows that a day of righteous wrath, of judgment, will come. Shows who will be there, who the judge will be. It will be Jesus Christ, his face, People will see. Again, that's good news. Who else would you trust to judge the world in righteousness? But it, it is deeply sobering news. Look at verse 6 again. He'll execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He'll shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Notice how kind of universal this is. There's no nation or worldview or religion or territory or people group that will be immune from this day of wrath. 
There will be every country on the globe, every street in every city, every flat in every halls of residence or block. And the job Jesus does is not going to be half finished. There's this strange, verse in, uh, strange language in verse 7. It's picture language. It's an imagery of a warrior who's, who's winning the battle but tiring. And he, he takes a drink from a brook by the way, so that he can lift up his head and continue pursuing these routed enemies, which is a picture-language way of saying, this judge won't get weary of the process. Jesus is not going to say, enough's enough. He's not going to say, I've made my point. No, he's committed to bring absolute justice to this world. And the effect of it, verse 6, is described as filling the nations with corpses. Now again, that's not a literal description. It's, it's another military image. It's the picture, if you've seen, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or any historical kind of film with a battle in, it's the picture where there are just bodies littered across a, a plain. It's a picture language, but I'm not actually saying that to say that the reality is going to be less scary than verse 6. Because as the Bible goes on, the reality is actually more scary. The other pictures we're given, think of the book of Revelation, which says so much about the end. Well, it's pictures like a second eternal death, or a lake of fire, or a winepress of God's wrath. Or the thing that Jesus himself said, the most loving man to have ever walked the planet, said this, be warned of a hell of unquenchable fire. Again, it's imagery, but what it points to is something more scary than just how Psalm 110 puts it. See, to meet the holy living God, the the righteous God, to meet that God unforgiven, it's just a desperate thing. It's desperate. At which point, let me come back to my opening question. I just want to be safe. Where is safe? It's so easy to think about that question just in terms of this life. Maybe just in terms of your your time at university. And if you do, you might start to think, well, maybe actually ditching Jesus, or at least pushing Jesus really to one side, or watering Jesus down to a slightly uh, man-made, people-pleasing version of Jesus. Well, maybe that would make me a lot safer here and now might make life easier socially or politically or legally or financially if I just kind of gave up the gospel thing and lived a bit more for myself. Or I found a Christianity where I get Jesus as the priest, the one who makes me friends with God, but just never talk about him as judge or king. But the problem is, whatever we would like to think the universe is like, God has chosen Jesus as his judge. We'll all see this day, whether we want to or not. And the one safe place is in the Lord Jesus. There's, there's nothing else. There's no other clout that can kind of buy your way out or force your way out of this. That's why I think he keeps mentioning in verses 5 to 7, kings and chiefs. I think he's saying, look, however big you are, whether you've got the financial clout of Bill Gates or the military clout of Trump or the social clout of Rita Ora, 
she, I don't actually know. <laughs> if you know social media, you can sub someone in who's still famous. Or the academic clout of a kind of university chancellor. Or the religious clout of an archbishop or a pope. Jesus shatters kings on that day. Chiefs. Let me give you Jesus' words. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can someone give in return for their soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So here's our point. Don't be deceived. The day of wrath will surely come and Jesus is the safe place to stand. That's our final fixed fact of the universe from Psalm 110. But as we draw to a close, just at the box at the bottom there, so what? How should we respond to that? Well, first off, warn others. I wonder if, even if you're a Christian, even if, as I've been talking, the, the names and faces of friends and families, we know colleagues, neighbours, family members, I wonder if, even as I've been talking, you've been thinking of those who have not yet found safety. It's not easy to think of that, but it is entirely right to, to pray for folk, to look for opportunities to speak to them, I think if we love people with a tiny echo of the love of God, the God who's holding back the end of the universe, holding back justice to give more people the chance to turn to Jesus, if we've got an echo of his love, we will pray and speak like that. I think lots of us feel like, well, I know I should and I know I want to even, but how on earth do I start? <laughs> like, how could I ever talk to someone about what we just looked at on Sunday in, in the sermon? Well, all this term, in our small groups and on Sunday, we're going to be helping each other with that. We've got a term in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, thinking about how do we engage with the world around us. And we're going to see Paul's example. Paul was willing to, to go through the discomfort barrier. He was willing to lay down his rights and his uh, preferences and his privileges so that other people could be saved. That's how he puts it. And what did he think they needed saving from? The end of Psalm 110. He really believed this was coming round the corner. And that's what um, drove him on to seek to, to get to know folk and share the great news of Jesus with them. So warn people, and we'll think lots more about the practicalities of that as we go through the term here. But finally, the, the absolute final thing I want to say is actually going to turn us back to Hebrews because Hebrews doesn't just say think about people outside the church, kind of think about the people out there, Hebrews encourages us to actually be careful about ourselves. Hebrews says we shouldn't be complacent about our own eternal security. It says we must not drift away from Jesus, from the one priest, king, judge. Now we don't have time to properly look at really any of the references on your sheet, but in chapters 3 and 4, God warns this church not to harden their hearts to God's voice. He compares them to Israel in the wilderness when Israel were not yet home. They weren't in the promised land, just like we're not yet home. 
We haven't seen Judgment Day yet. And they had a promise on oath that God would get them into the land. We have a promise on oath from Psalm 110 that Jesus is the one safe place to be. And so the encouragement is don't harden your heart. Don't start disbelieving the promise just because it hasn't happened yet. But the note I do want to end on is chapter 10. So please do turn with me, uh, final turn, I promise, to page 1007, which is another warning in Hebrews 10. Page 1007, Hebrews 10. Last week, we had wonderful news, Jesus is our priest, and we turned to Hebrews 10 for a positive application. We can approach God with confidence whenever, wherever we are. That was chapter 10, verse 19. We have confidence to enter the heavenly throne room. But there is a flip side of that, which is if we walk away from Jesus, well, there's no confidence that we'll be safe before God. So let me read from verse 23 and just listen out for the warning not to walk from Jesus. Verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised, not least in Psalm 110, is faithful And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, that is the day of God's wrath, drawing near. For, now this is talking about walking away from Jesus, not just about um, battling with a sin, but walking away from Jesus. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The preacher to the Hebrews says, Don't risk drifting away from King Jesus. It's the only safe place to be. I know in this life, I know at university, I know in, for teenagers in, in our high schools, it can seem like the, the, the least safe thing to say I'm a Christian. But actually, eternally, it's the only safe thing. That does mean if anyone here is messing around with sin and not repenting of it, or is looking over the fence wondering... Could I get away with a double life? Could I follow Jesus on Sundays or when people are watching and then ignore his lordship the rest of the time? Or if you are wondering about looking for a church that will just tell you what you want to hear, not what Jesus says in the Bible, a church that won't say it straight, please don't risk it. Lots of churches wonderfully in this city do say it straight. But don't risk going to one where they just tell you what you want to hear or what the world wants you to hear. I'm starting to get old. I realised it, uh, partly seeing grey hairs in the mirror, but 
even more so uh, not being able to keep up with people anymore in football. It's very humbling. Um, but actually, the, the saddest part of beginning to grow old is I'm now, I've been in ministry long enough to see people who look the part, some even in ministry with me in the past, and yet at the moment have walked away from Jesus. It's a sobering thing. Jesus himself, parable of the sower, warned that, that some people would have the truth squeezed out by the pressures of life or by the persecution that comes to us. But there's no need for us to. Verse 24 again of Hebrews 10. Verse 23 and 24. I'll close with this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are some countries in the world where it's actually quite dangerous to meet with other Christians. Some of our global partners are in those countries. It uh, risks you getting spotted if you go to a Christian meeting or an underground church. Actually, it's the safest thing you can do. Same is true at university, meeting with other Christians, because it helps keep you trusting Jesus, the priest at God's right hand. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this amazing psalm, this amazing early warning of King Jesus. Thank you that he is our eternal priest, that we can be totally confident, forgiven for free forever in him. We pray for any who have considered a, a, toying with sin or a double life. We pray that you would call them back this morning. Pray for those who are looking with their lives ahead, wondering if they'll trust Jesus for themselves. We pray that you would cause them to see how trustworthy he is. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.